In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If there were ever a sermon series that was an act of repentance, this is the one. And by that I mean to correct something of an imbalance. There is a doctrine, uh, a conviction that the Christian church holds, that you heard referenced on a number of occasions in our previous series on the letter to the church at Ephesus. It is a doctrine that even got thrust onto the world stage a few months ago from, of all places, Asbury, Kentucky. It is a doctrine that so easily and too easily gets shifted to the margins because the modern rationalistic mindset clearly shapes the modern church. I'm a part of that. So are you. What is this doctrine that sort of gets short shrift in too many ways, in too many places, at too many times? That would be the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And the reason I'm calling it an act of repentance or the correction of an imbalance is because how often do you think and how often do I preach in such a way that you think that the following of Jesus is primarily a function of understanding claims, categories, and concepts? How often do you think in those terms? How often do I bring forth the text in those terms? And less so, if not, if not at all, the idea that following Jesus is just as much about dependence, assistance, and accompaniment. You and I, in our Western mindset, too often and too easily reduce what it means to live in terms of having right belief and right action. And both of those are important. Reason is important. I'm not disparaging any of those categories. But if that's all following Jesus is, then what in the world do we ever talk about the Holy Spirit for? That's where we want to go for however long we need to. And that's probably the scariest part of it. I don't know when this will end. Ephesians was easy. When you got to verse 22 of chapter 6, you were done. I don't know. We don't know where this will go. And we'll, don't, it's not going to go for four years. And I also don't want to turn it into like, we're going to try to dissect the Holy Spirit. He is not an object of study. He is God. Therefore, our objective, if you want to put it that way, in what we're doing here is to try to figure out what does Paul mean at the end of Galatians chapter 5 when he says this. Never mind, I'll come back to that in just a minute. He says, what does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? That question assumes a whole sort of background on answering that question is, what is the Spirit? Who is the Spirit? What does the Spirit do? Uh, huh. We got questions, right? But let me be very straight up with you and cards on table in this moment. Everybody's got questions about this. Richard Lovelace was a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And Andrew found this one, and I thought, there's a great way to frame up what we're doing here. He said this, ministers who are shaky about their own relationship to the Holy Spirit, and who among us are not, 
should enter the project as a joint venture of discovery with their congregants, confident that everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. Consider me in that category of shaky. Consider me in that category of thinking of this whole attempt as a joint venture with you. Consider me as one like you who has questions that are enduring and that go deep that I don't have answers for right now. And some of your questions are as important as any, any ones that I might have. And we believe that so much that we have even created an email address for you to send in those questions. It's this email address. That's the spirit, gmr at gmail.com. You have questions. We would like to know what some of those questions are. Now, I can't promise you that we're going to answer all of them through this series. It may happen in here. It may happen in other forums. But you have questions, and I've got mine. I'd like to know, we'd like to know what yours are. So there's the email address. That's the spirit, GMR. The devil is at work today. That's the spirit, GMR at gmail.com. And if I can put a real poignant kind of take on that question about having questions. This is a book that just came out on Friday by a guy named Alan Noble, who's a professor of literature at Oklahoma Baptist, and he's is a member of a sister church in Shawnee, Oklahoma. And this is the first page of his book. It's called On Getting Out of Bed, The Burden and Gift of Living. And he says this, the subject of this book is mental suffering, and its assumption is that everyone experiences mental suffering at one point or another. This includes diagnosed mental illnesses and disorders and undiagnosed or even undiagnosable anxieties, depressions, and burdens of life. Although my subject is broad, it is not intended to be all-encompassing. I won't try to describe the experience of every mental issue, but I do believe that what follows will resonate with most people who have endured mental affliction. Life is difficult, and we experience that difficulty in different ways and to varying extents, but we always experience it in our hearts and our minds. That's the experience is the subject of this book. How many of you in this room could nod your head and go, where do I get a copy? And here's the question. Given that, given the way life is, is the only thing that we have in our toolkit what we can think about, talk about, or treat? And how does the Holy Spirit even enter into the conversation about that conversation? He addresses it. We all have to at some point. This is not an academic subject. And we need to address this subject as we can. So, where do we begin? Where do you begin? Well, there are worse places to begin than at the beginning. And I would like to in a very quirky kind of way, because we are Grace Mills River, I would like to begin this consideration by appealing to, of all people, Gene Roddenberry. Star Trek. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, came out 40 years ago. I'm old. There is a research vessel, the USS Reliant. It is a research vessel conducting rather high-level and very secretive research, and it has somehow been commandeered by another ship and the lead researcher on that project, it's called the Genesis Project, it's a device that is able to be crashed into a lifeless moon and life comes from lifelessness. And Captain Kirk and Spock and Bones, they get this staticky message from the lead researcher going, why are you stealing Genesis? And they're like, 
Spock and Kirk have no idea what she's talking about. So the line goes dead, and they you know, go onto their Federation Wikipedia and pull up the report by Dr. Carol Marcus, the lead researcher on the Genesis Project. It is a device that when you insert it onto a moon, it can bring life out of lifelessness. And in that moment, Spock and Bones, like they are wont to do, have this metaphysical, philosophical argument because they are at each other's throats all the time. They both marvel at the reality that now a technology has been developed to bring life out of lifelessness, but they are also terrified by the prospect of that device ever falling into the wrong hands. Ooh, foreshadowing. Even Gene Roddenberry, who would just as soon go to brunch than come here on a Sunday morning, who would never more give a thought to God than anything else, but he would insert that idea into the storyline of a major motion picture, friends, that question is everybody's question. Where did it all come from? The origins of all things. you got three answers. you got three possibilities. One, it's always been here. Two, it began with something within the system. Or three, it began from something or someone outside the system. Every ancient culture has an account. And often those accounts are about gods that are fighting with each other. But in Genesis, Genesis 1, everything came into being by a word. By a word from the Lord. And there early on in the narrative is the presence of the Spirit of God. That's where we're starting, at the beginning. And we're going to consider what we can about what Genesis 1 tells us about the Holy Spirit under three heads. That there is a Spirit, what the Spirit does, why the Spirit matters. That the Spirit is, what the Spirit does, why the Spirit matters. Now, look, we're going to read all of Genesis 1. That's the whole first page. Keep your seats. I don't want anybody to pass out. But if you want, close your eyes. Be in the dark like all the darkness began. And do what you can to visualize things as the words give you inspiration. Huh. We're in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to go all to verse 3 to chapter 2. So listen and close your eyes if you want. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. 
And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds, and of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to set the table. And setting the table is not always joy, but it's necessary. And it can be interesting insofar as you give attention to it and assume that there might be something there for you. No one tells the whole story in the first chapter. No profile of any personage, of any story, any film, whatever, is fully profiled at the very beginning. That's why you keep reading. And so, as Christians, it is hard, if you are a Christian, it's hard not to read back what else you have heard about the, the, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, read it back upon what we are about to hear about the 
presence of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And like, good luck, do your best. But I, I would like you to think of what we're about to do here as a process of excavation. When they excavate, they, they dig up a little bit and then they find something. They go, what's that? And they brush away a little bit more and then they see a little bit more and then they brush away a little bit more and they see a little bit more and it's slow and sometimes it's painstaking and you just kind of want to get to the point. Just tell me the whole thing. But look, the woolly mammoth is big. So we're going to brush stroke. And at times we'll reach forward, but we're going to try to take the text on its own terms. Where does the excavation begin? Uh, it's not long before we start excavating the person of the Holy Spirit from very verse 2, right? In the beginning was the heavens. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The word for spirit is the Hebrew word ruach, which if you were to trace that word throughout the Old Testament, you would find a whole range of meanings. Sometimes it means wind, sometimes it means breath, sometimes it means spirit, sometimes it refers to that which is a possession of humanity, and at other times, it refers to that which is of divine origin and essence. So it's got a range of meanings, and it's our responsibility to figure out, well, what might the meaning be here, but then also to keep an open hand for how that profile might be developed over time. What we find here in these range of meanings is to ask ourselves a question. What does verse 2 mean? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. You can't be dogmatic or definitive about what verse 2 means. You can ask the question, is that just a way of speaking of God manifesting his power in the universe? Is it just a poetic way of referring to how God acts? You can't be dogmatic. You only got verse 2. If that's all you got, you know, you got to, well, this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's the spirit that's excavating. That's the spirit that is doing its work. And so as we press on throughout the study of this text and of others, you've got to be patient. Next week when we're going to consider Psalm 51, you will hear the psalmist say, O Lord, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Put it in that frame, it, it almost sounds like what we're talking about here in the way of the Spirit is something relational, something more than just a power or the exertion of agency, it's something else. When we get to Ezekiel, where Ezekiel anticipates a day when it says God will put his Spirit in his own, it sounds like that there's something distinct going on there than even what we see here, that there is something of God that is from God, that is given by God to those who are in union with God. What is that all about? And it's not until we even get to Jesus where we begin to consider that the Spirit is something more than just a power or a force. That that Spirit is illuminating, that Spirit is guiding, that Spirit is doing something but what we do glean from this, even here in verse 2, is that the Spirit of God, here's one word for it, existence. It's not an imaginary thing. 
The Spirit of God is an existing thing. And I even use the word thing tentatively. What are the implications for that? I think you and I always have to assume that there is more of God to know than what we presently do. It is really easy to get in a rut. It is simple to kind of think, yeah, this is as good as it gets. This is all I'll ever know. There's nothing more to know or experience. So, you know, don't worry, be happy. It's what you got. I, I, don't, I don't think we can ever embrace that posture if we're to take the Spirit's existence reasonably. We always have to assume that there is more of God to know. And I also think you and I, and I'll, I won't project my world on you, but I'll bet I'm not the only one in the room that sometimes thinks of God like you have a portrait of um, a grandmother in your house who has died and all sorts of memories and ideas and wisdom and principles that come to mind when you stare at that face, but it's two-dimensional and it's lifeless. For us to believe in the existence of the Spirit is to shift from thinking of God as like um, a picture on a wall to that figure coming out of the painting and relating to you. Existence doesn't mean just an idea. It means something that is here, something that is at work, as we sang earlier. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. To grapple with that is to believe. We don't know it all. We don't know everything we have to know of him. And he is not on a, not on a wall. As we've compared it, you know, too often, we, we sometimes reduce the Holy Spirit to kind of like elf on the shelf. Like, he's there, and I, I can't dismiss he's there, but what's he for? I'm not really sure. Put him back in the attic. There is a spirit, and I think verse 2 can give us good reason for thinking that, but let's, let's get down, down to the nitty-gritty. What does the spirit do? This is not complicated. You just sat through an eight-minute reading of Genesis 1, and you probably got a good, pretty good impression that the Spirit is not like a set piece in Genesis 1. Oh, look, it's the Spirit. We don't ever hear from him. And, oh, it's a cameo expression. He's making a cameo appearance. Hey, here I am. I'll be back later. No. That Spirit, who's hovering over the face of the deep before everything that was formless and void, that Spirit is involved in creation. To bring something forward. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth, it says, was formless and void. Here's this famous Hebrew phrase, tohu vabohu. It shows up in only one other place in the Old Testament, and when it's Jeremiah lamenting about Israel's sin, which is now about to send it into exile into Babylon, he says the world is tohu vabohu, formless and void. That which Israel once, even though created and constituted, now... It's a wasteland. It is chaos. Uh, my kids are going to hate me for this. We made recently a covenant with my kids about how to keep our house clean. And we made a covenant with one another, parents to kids. And we included some Bible verse in there because when in doubt, use the manual. <laughs> and we included scripture in there to kind of ground ourselves in it. And the very first verse that we cited was Genesis 1-2 to make this argument that the very first thing that God ever did was to bring 
order out of chaos. It's not just for our own mental health benefit. It is of divine sanction. What is the spirit up to? Yeah, like parents are going, can I have a copy? And now the parents are like, kids are like, I'm leaving. Look, what is the spirit about? Not a set piece, but involved. The spirit is involved in the work of creation. Just as we hear Jesus spoken of involved in the word of creation in John chapter 1, but enough about him today. This spirit is bringing form and function to all things. And though you heard eight minutes of details, some of which those details are kind of like, what? RCA Doug, huh? What? I think you can break down everything that you heard about what the Spirit is involved in into two main categories. One, and it all comes from that tohu vabohu. The Spirit is involved in the work of formation <clears throat> and distinction. He creates light and day, and he separates the two from one another. He creates this heavenly expanse from this watery expanse. Yeah, we'll come back to that another time. But separates those two. Creates land and seas and he separates those. There's formlessness. And then he replaces it with form. I promise there's a point to this part, okay? But not only is he involved in the work of forming what was once formlessness, he then fills everything that he has thus formed. He separates light from day, and what does he do in the realm of light, in the realm of day? He puts a, a larger light during the light, the day, and he puts a smaller light during the light to give light at all times. What is that? The sun, the moon? Oh, that's what that is. He inserts that. He puts that in there. He fills those realms with something. He puts winged creatures in the heavenly expanse. He puts sea creatures in the watery expanse. He puts all of these creatures in land, beef, well, did I say that? Sorry. Livestock. <laughs> things that crawl on the ground and then what does he do he, he makes humanity and he instructs them to do as he has done multiply and fill the earth there's forming and there's filling that's what the spirit is about here in the work of creation it's not just la, 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 forming and filling but look there's another layer to that action. There's another layer to that agency. It's not just like an inventory, like a day check, night check, land check, sea check, humanity check. There's more to it than that. There's a purpose to it. And it's a little subtle. And you don't really see its fullness until you press further into the Old Testament. Some of you in this room are home builders. You build houses. You build places. And you don't just sort of blithely or randomly construct form and, and put things here just sort of willy-nilly or just because you can. You, you want to bring something into that construction, into that design that is meant to create a sense of home, of intimacy, of family. And what you heard in the details in Genesis chapter 1 and what you would also hear in the parallel count of creation in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 is that there is something at work that we don't maybe easily see just in hearing it cold. The tree in the middle of the garden. When it comes to the tabernacle and the temple, what is in the Holy of Holies? A lampstand that looks like a tree. In Genesis chapter 2, it speaks of Adam working and keeping the garden. 
Working and keeping, those exact two same verbs are used to speak of the priests working and keeping the temple. In Genesis chapter 3, you know the part when it's, we're about to have this massive cataclysm. It says, God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The word there for cool is ruach. God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, present to his creation. What do we think of the temple and the tabernacle? Where God meets with man. What's my, what's my point here? The creative act of the Spirit to form and to fill has a greater purpose. Not just to show, wow, that's amazing. You're very competent at what you're doing. Not only are you existent, you're competent. That forming and that filling is for fellowship between who God is and who humanity is. To make a house for my name, it says, of the temple and of the tabernacle, where people might converse. And yet, isn't it wonderful? You heard Amanda read from Acts chapter 17. Yes, it's proper to think of that house of the Lord as a place where we might meet with him, but he's not constrained by it. It's not like, if he's not here, I can't engage him anywhere else. It's not, that's not what the temple is. The forming and filling of creation is all for fellowship between God and humanity. Okay. And you're going... That's interesting. I thought you weren't turning this into an academic subject. You need to hear that. I need to hear that. Otherwise, I will misunderstand the Holy Spirit as just some sort of interesting tidbit in my, the amassing of knowledge about what the Scripture says. Why does this matter? I would like for you to hear another voice that kind of puts it all in context it's a voice that I've introduced to you in the last couple of years, because I've only been introduced to his voice in the last couple of years. He's a Brit living in Northern Ireland. His name is Paul Kingsnorth, and he recently gave an interview, again, not only recounting how, from an early age, he, up until three years ago, he thought Christianity was a joke. It was one more account of humanity, foisted upon humanity, just to comfort people in an illusion. And then something changed for him. And he's going to put in context here why everything I've just said about what the, create, what the Spirit does in creation has an implication for how you think about your next breath and the entirety of your story. So listen to him kind of put into his own words the voice of one who was a non-believer up until three years ago, now believing and understanding what does it mean to follow Christianity. Listen. I think that when I was young, I thought that the Christian faith was largely irrelevant to me, as most of us do in the modern world now, and it didn't have anything to say about the world I was living in, didn't have anything to say about the supposed problems of modernity. When I started to rediscover Christianity properly several years ago, and I really sat down and started to read the Bible as if I might believe it, as if it might have something to communicate to me, um, and especially when I read the book of Genesis, actually, I saw this great unfurling story, and this is all the way through the Bible, of course, of, of a of a humanity that is created to return the love of God and to live in communion with creator and creation and each other, and which had decided to reject that and had decided instead to walk away. It's almost as if God is, is like a jilted lover, you know, um, and we've decided to run off with his enemy. And we've, we live in this way that rejects 
rejects God and rejects creation. And we try to become gods ourselves. And I think that's what modern people do. I think we're trying to become gods technologically, culturally, in all sorts of ways. We're trying to replace God with our own ego. And when you see the human story in that sense, it's revolutionary. For me, it was astonishing to understand that Christianity, which I'd thought was this irrelevant old faith, had actually always been telling us about what the heart of our problem was. You can look at the environmental crisis in that way. You can look at politics, culture, all of these things through the lens of our rebellion against who we're actually made to be. And so the work of a Christian is, is trying to put themselves back into the shape that we were made to be, hopefully with God's grace as we do it, because we can't do it on our own. For someone who for decades looked upon what he found in Genesis as nothing more than an idle tale, he understands more from just the first two chapters of Genesis than I would say most of us do, myself included. That the story that we just recounted explains a lot of things. That we were made to be something. That there is an impulse, which if we are honest with each other, we all live and know very well that I would rather do my own thing and become my own God and create every other device that I can to control and manipulate my environment that I might be my own God and you can, I give this stiff arm to the one who made me. And that the life that we're trying to find, the one we really want, but we don't believe that we wanted, is to be shaped into the image of who we're meant to be. The work of the Spirit to form and to fill, to fit us for fellowship, that's his work in every one of you. That that which we might have been in awe of in seeing those images of the horse, who, the horse head nebulae and um, all of those other real things that are in existence in the universe farther away than you can ever put zeros on. We're meant to feel awe, but we're also meant to feel that the creator and the spirit who did that also works in you. So therein lies the question, made into what? Shaped into What? formed and filled into what? This is where we get back and where I end with Gene Roddenberry one more time. You're wondering, why did he bring that up at the beginning? It's a dangling appendage. Where are we going? I'll tell you. Yes, the Genesis device falls into the wrong hands. And yes, the Genesis device was about to be used by those wrong hands to bring destruction, not only to the one who had it, but also to the Enterprise itself, because once again, the Enterprise warp coils are damaged. Scotty, you're fired. They can't get to light speed, they can't get to warp speed and escape the explosion that's about to happen unless something really remarkable happens. Somebody's going to have to go into the core and repair the mains, but in so doing, they're going to have to subject themselves to a lethal dose of radiation. And at that point, for whom one person, it makes perfect logical sense, Spock. He goes, he enters the cabin, he subjects himself to a lethal dose of radiation, he repairs the mains, warp coil is fixed, Scotty reports, they screws on, and the Genesis device goes off, but not before the Enterprise can get out of the blast zone. And there you have Spock and Kirk speaking through a protective barrier, saying their last words, and Spock giving the live long and prosper, which is actually 
Leonard Nimoy's way of showing you the first, verse, the first letter of the word shalom. It's the word sh, and this is what it looks like if you were to write it in Hebrew. And at Spock's funeral, Captain Kirk says this, of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, his was the most human. What a funny way to put it, Gene. Humans are, I speak from experience, very self-serving and very self-focused and very self-absorbed. So why would Gene or Captain Kirk suggest that what is most human is what Spock did, giving up all to save all? Because I think in the background of that story is Jesus. And that's why at the beginning and end of that story, what do they quote? A tale of two cities. I'm about to do the very far, far better thing than I have ever done to go to a far, far better resting place than I have ever known. And that story is Jesus also. So what is it that we're being shaped into the image of? The one who was most human. The one who Paul puts it in Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, who he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What's the takeaway? Some of you believe that the gospel is about forgiveness, and you would be right. He dies that we might be forgiven. But I might humbly inquire do you understand that forgiveness was the beginning of something else, namely that you would be formed into his image? And some of you in this room believe, yes, I, I, I believe I am to be formed into the image of his son, into the one who is most human. But do you also believe that in order to do that, you need the filling of the Holy Spirit? Paul Kingsnorth there, at first you think he's saying, I need to shape myself and do it. He goes, no, but we can only do that by God's grace because we can't do it on our own. Forgiven, yes, but also to be formed. Formed, yes, but also Dependent on filling. That's why we need to understand a little bit more about the Holy Spirit. That's why we need to know that Jesus is more than just about a story and examples and parables and commands. We need him to give us something in order to walk in his way. And that's why we need the table. It's not just something we do. It's not a ritual we follow. All right, I'll just remember. And he said so. We need to receive something as often as we can. And the table is one means by which we can. That's the Spirit. Let's pray. Holy Father, the one who sent your Son, whom then gave us his Spirit, depending on who we are, for what reasons we find it difficult to get out of bed or to face any number of things that tax our minds. We ask that you might remind us uh, that we weren't meant to do this life within our own strength and our own will and our own guidance and our own light. And I pray that that would somehow allow us a measure of relief, uh, but also a posture of request and of calling upon you at whatever hour we need you.
that you might replace in us whatever tendency we have to think of you as a painting on a wall and instead to consider you as closer to us than our next breath. So lead us, guide us, show us. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. In the name of Jesus we pray.